The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. This ser- series is about the person and work of Jesus. And uh, that's pretty broad, and so let me use an example to narrow it down about more of what we'll be talking about uh, over the next several weeks. When Janae and I found out that we were uh, pregnant with each of our children, we would, we would find ourselves laying awake at night, uh, whispering to one another and wondering uh, what our children would be like, uh, what they would look like, uh, the color of their hair, what they would do, what kind of people they would become. And I know that if you have had children, you've probably found yourself doing similar things. And you begin uh, with this very brief picture in your mind at the first ultrasound, you see this, this, just this outline of, of a person. And, and you start to see little features, and you, you wonder, oh, is that the shape of their nose and, 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 and the shape of their forehead? Wow, it's very prominent forehead. Uh, and so you start, to, you start to think about your children, and you have this hint of what they will look like, and you wonder what they will become. Every ultrasound that we had with our, with our baby, with Quinn, uh, she always had her tongue out in the ultrasound. And, and even now, if you, if you, you'll see her wandering the halls of the church, like sticking her tongue fully out. She always has her tongue out. It's just so cool. It's like, that's what she's going to be like. Great. Uh, <laughs> and then on the day of their birth, you, you know that there's so many questions that have been answered. And, and you, get a, you get a glimpse of what you had weeks before, months before, just, just little hints of. And you can only wonder, and more and more is revealed over time. And every ultrasound, uh, every ultrasound you, you are re- more and more is revealed to you. And then on the birth, you see, you see something special and you delight in what you see. But then there's still many more questions, right? Uh, there's new questions. Uh, how will they mature as a result of their uh, uh, the successes and failures in life. We don't know. I'm sure you might do this if you have children. Jesus was presented to the world in a similar way. Uh, that's what this series is about. Jesus was presented to the world in a similar way. We're given revelations of who he is uh, early on in the pages of Scripture, little hints, uh, uh, little ultrasounds, if you will, and outlines of, of the kind of person he would be and the work that he would do. And over time, this picture is, is, becomes more and more colorful. And we even see him at his birth, and we learn more and more as more has said about him. And then we see the actual works that he will do, and then ultimately we see him dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And yet, and yet there's still more that is yet to be done. He's continuing to work now in our lives and in the world. And he promises one day to, to usher in even a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. We call him Jesus, we call him Jesus, and yet he goes by different names like King and Savior and Lord. And if you want to learn about Jesus, you, you might go to the New Testament. If someone says, how do I learn about Jesus? You might point them to the Gospel of Matthew or John or any of the Gospel accounts. But this is not where his story begins. It actually begins in the Garden. In the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, we see the first hint the first ultrasound of the good news. The garden is, uh, is the ultrasound of the gospel. And we see here the first glimpse of, of what he would do and what he would be like. And in the book of Revelation, we see the great city of God, the city of God where we see the fullest picture of what, what he has accomplished, where evil is no more, 
where the, the garden is restored and we, his people are flourishing under his love and leadership and reign. And everything in between the garden and the city is, is the revelation of, of so much that we learn of how to have a life that is centered on this person, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so for this series, in a way, this series is no different than any other series that we do. We look to Jesus, we look to him in his glory, in his person, in his goodness. We look to him to be nourished uh, by what he has done and who he is. And in being nourished and knowing who he is, we would worship him in our whole lives. And so that's what we want to do in this series, like we do in every series. We look at Jesus through God's word and we say, how do I live my life in praise and worship of who he is and what he has done? And so I mentioned that the first hint of what we learn of Jesus is found in uh, the Garden of Eden. And so let's begin our teaching there. If you want to follow along with us, we're going to go all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1 through 15. Let's read together. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows what you, that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, so, was, to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. Well, Genesis is, as we know, the book of beginnings. This is where it starts. And so it's here we find the first hint of what Jesus would do and what he would be like. And in verse 15, we are told that Jesus would be the seed of the woman. He is the seed of the woman. This context is a familiar one. Many of you are familiar with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he put Adam and Eve in the midst of this beautiful garden where they enjoyed harmony and peace with God and with one another. And God required from them, and all that he required from them is perfect obedience to one 
one rule. Don't eat of the, fr- of the fruit of one particular tree. God tells them, trust and obey me, and that's all you will ever need. I'm all that you will ever need to be happy in your life. Just trust and obey. Trust in what I've provided and what I have done for you. Trust in what I've said, and that's all that you will ever need. And yet they wanted more. And along came Satan. He came preaching. He came preaching the first sermon in the Bible. And it was the prosperity gospel. It was a sermon that said, why would God give you all of this beauty, something to be desired? Why would he forbid this of you? Look how delicious it is. Why would he tell you no? He wants you to be happy. God and his love is not manifested in in how he limits our lives, but in how he gives us freedom. God wants you to be happy. He wouldn't want you to restrain your desires. He would want you to enjoy what he has made. It's natural. It's organic. It's from the ground. How could it be bad for you? In fact, it's good for you. And as soon as Eve's teeth sunk into and broke the skin of the fruit, all creation groaned. Lust, shame, fear, guilt, mistrust, blame shifting as we have seen selfishness and loneliness rushed into the hearts of Adam and Eve. And for the first time, they questioned to themselves, is God good? Is God good enough? Is God truly all that we need? And for the first time, they looked at one another and wondered, are you good for me? Are we safe with one another? They felt ashamed for they were naked and they covered themselves and they hid. Then God found them. He found them afraid and naked and crouching behind bushes, the very bushes that God had created for their enjoyment and nourishment and pleasure they are now using to hide their shame. It's now a place of hiding. The mo- that morning they were walking with God in the garden with, in joy, and now by the afternoon they are hiding, afraid of Him. They couldn't undo what had been done. They couldn't go back. The relationship of love had been broken. And God's response to them in that moment, after he pronounces curse on, on the serpent is, and on creation and on their lives, is a pronouncement of hope. He says to them, I'm going to fix this. I am going to undo all that you have done. And in the very first moments of their greatest rebellion, we see God on the scene offering good news, offering a hint of, of, of what he will do that will rescue them from everything that they have done. A hint, just an ultrasound, just an outline, a very basic pronouncement of good news. And he says all this pain and suffering and sadness would end. And it is here we see the ultrasound of the gospel, a glimpse of what Jesus will do. And it's here we come to learn of what this early glimpse means of Jesus. And that's what we need to talk about. What does this early glimpse mean for Jesus? Well, it means that Jesus will embrace our conflict. It means that Jesus will face our enemy, and in facing him, he will defeat him, and that Jesus will restore the garden. So let's talk about that. First, Jesus embraces our conflict. What we we know is just a glimpse at this point. The serpent and the seed of the woman would contend with one another, until the very end, until one would be defeated and both would be wounded. 
Both would be wounded. This, there would be this ongoing conflict in life, and both would be wounded, in, except the wounds inflicted on the serpent would prove fatal. The Apostle John, one of, the, one of Jesus' closest friends, aims to answer the very simple question in the account of Jesus' life. The question would be, why did Jesus come? I mean, why was he born at all? He asks the question, and he even answers the question. And it's very simple. He says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, The reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus came, he came to fulfill Genesis 3.15. Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection was to fulfill this ultrasound of good news in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 that said, One day, one will be born of, this, of a woman and will defeat the works of the devil. If we understand Genesis 3.15, we understand the plotline of the entire Bible. God makes a promise. Conflict happens as a result of us neglect, God's people neglecting to trust in Him as, as, as all that they need in life. Conflict ensues, and then, and then the end of the conflict happens in, a, in victory through what God accomplishes. Victory through the seed of the woman. We see this ongoing conflict. Would you look at your life for a minute? Would you look at our world? Will you look at how this conflict that began in the garden is ongoing? Even to this day, in the very next chapter, we see in Genesis chapter 4 that, that Eve has a child. She has a boy, a seed comes from her, and she wonders, this is, the, this is the promise that God has provided that will fix all that is broken. And then this child grows, and Cain kills his brother Abel, reminding Eve that this is not the promise. This is just an ongoing conflict, prolonged suffering. We see the conflict when God floods the earth and kills all the inhabitants of the earth except one family because of the wickedness of all people. We see it in the story of Egypt, Egypt against Israel, against God's people. We see it against uh, David and Goliath. We see it in Herod against the promised Savior that would come and through killing all firstborn males. We see it in the suffering of Jesus through the hands of the Jewish authorities in the New Testament. And in the book of Acts, we see the ongoing conflict in the early church as they suffered and were persecuted. We see it today, the conflict that, that happens among neighbors, among nations, even the presence of mold and rust and flat tires are a result of an ongoing conflict trapped soccer players in caves in Thailand, fear of, of, of war and rumors of war, an actual war, and family separations, and debilitating sicknesses, and emotional disorders, the ongoing conflict as a result of not trusting in Jesus in the garden, and God saying, one day, I'm going to fix this. And in Galatians chapter 4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, when it was ready, when the world that had been created in the right time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
we're reminded in so many ways. We often overlook it because it's just natural to think of person, a person born of a woman. But we, we, we overlook it. We read scripture too quickly. We don't, we don't meditate on it enough. And all throughout scripture, the scripture writers go at great lengths to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus was born of a woman. And we think, well, well how else would he be born? Of course he's born of a woman. No, do you see what is happening? That the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, he's born of a woman. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 3. He is the seed of, of, of the woman who would defeat Satan. In Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, when we see that every conflict has ceased, the Bible is a story of ongoing conflict. Everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 is just ongoing conflict. But Jesus wants us to know that the promise of conflict is coming to an end. And the only way that conflict has an ending is through the victory over Satan on our behalf. And so Jesus comes into the world. He's born of a woman. He takes that first step onto, onto dry land to embrace our conflict. In his humiliation, he becomes a man. God in his full glory not needing to condescend and come down to earth. He, he embraces our conflict. He says, I'm, I'm with you in this conflict. I'm being born under all these obligations, all, these under, all the law. I'm being born and being susceptible to weariness and sickness and fatigue, to poverty. And we see that Jesus was a man of great suffering. Not just suffering of, 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 of having the weight of, a weight of sin in his life, but suffering as one who is prone to every temptation that you and I are, every weariness, every hunger, every thirst, every appetite and frustration. And the resolution of conflict comes not because Jesus is born, but because he does more than that. You see, the good news is not that Jesus is born, but that what he will do as a result of him being born, that he confronts and defeats our enemy. This is the second thing that we learn of this story is that Jesus confronts our enemy. There is this dramatic scene, this not suitable for work scene in Revelation chapter 12 of a vision that the Apostle John has of, of how Jesus confronts our greatest enemy. Don't read it to your children late at night. Find a time to tell them of this story, uh, but not late at night, and then just kiss them on the forehead and say goodnight. It depicts a scene where this woman is full-on in the pains of childbirth. She's about to have a son. The story tells us that she is groaning. She is weeping. She is screaming in pain and in agony of childbirth, as you can imagine. And standing before her comes this dragon with his mouth gaping open, waiting to devour the child that is being born. And the child is born and the dragon's mouth is wide open, ready to devour this child as soon as he is born. Satan is depicted as this dragon, and the child to be born is depicted as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Savior, as Jesus Christ. And the story conflict between the seed and the woman and Satan is worse than anything Stephen King can write up. It's the greatest nightmare that any, that any of us can face. This, this scene and this story is scarier than anything that we can fathom. And yet, as soon as the son is born, he is taken up into God's presence. He is taken up into heaven. We know the end of the story. We know that the dragon is defeated. 
But here what we have is a depiction of this conflict and this presentation of Christ into the world where he goes head to head with our greatest nightmare. Our greatest nightmare is, 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 in, is having to endure the punishment of God. Is ourselves being devoured by that lion? Is ourselves being defeated by death and sin and the curse of sin? But Jesus coming into our lives and facing our enemies on our behalf. Jesus confronts our enemy head on for us. We're seeing what Jesus would do. We're seeing what he would become. We're seeing how he will fulfill Genesis chapter 3, 15. That he would confront and defeat the devil. That he would be in this conflict. And we look at Genesis 3.15 and it's not scary. All we know is this ultrasound of a story that one day the seed of woman will, will, will confront this enemy and he will defeat him. Oh, that's so nice that God would do that. It's the most cosmic nightmare that you can imagine. It is a battle that you and I are not prepared to face and would never win. It's the scariest thing that you could come up with. And Jesus takes it head on. Many times we, we see all the admirable actions of Jesus. We see what he has done and the behaviors of Christ as he grew and lived his life. We see this three-year period of time. And we look at all that he has done. We look, at, we look at all the good things that Jesus did while he was alive. And we, we admire his actions and we, we look at them as examples to live by. What I mean is we say, Jesus is tempted and he fought off the devil with, with Scripture. And so we should do that too. Jesus was forgiving his enemies. And we should forgive our enemies too. Jesus was kind. And therefore we should be like Jesus and be kind. And so when we look at the life of Christ, most of the time we just look at those things as just examples to live by. And that's not wrong. He is our example. But maybe it's harmful to see him just as an example to live by. He's so much more. He is faced with situations where there is a right and a wrong response. And this is a very important thing for us to see. He is born under God's law for a reason. And it is to go face to face with the devil just like Adam did. But except where Adam failed, Jesus wins. Jesus succeeds. He is faithful. Do you know why Jesus is tempted and then endures that? temptation through faithfulness and obedience to God's word? Do you know why Jesus loves his enemies? Do you know why Jesus is a good person? Is because he was doing everything that Adam and, and, and we are supposed to do, except he is staring in, in the face of Satan into temptation, and he is not falling into weakness. He is not sinning. He is not giving up. He is not giving into temptation when life gets hard. That's why he's a good example. That's why he's much more than that. Jesus' life is a, is a replication of the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. And when, when Eve was tempted and when she saw that it was pleasing to the taste and it was delicious and it was pleasing to the eye and she gave in to temptation, Jesus resists. So what? Total obedience was the life of Christ. Total obedience was the task that was given to Adam, but he failed. And total obedience was the task given to Jesus, and he succeeded. From the beginning of Jesus' life to his end, he is fighting against the power of sin. He is fighting against the power of, of, of death and of temptation, and he's faithful. 
There was not a bone in Jesus' body that wanted him to experience the abandonment of his father on the cross. There's not a bone in Jesus' body that wanted to be crucified for your sins. Now, I know that the Bible says that the joy set before him, he endured the cross, but don't misunderstand that to mean that Jesus wanted to do this, that he wanted to experience the abandonment of his father. He loved his father. He loved his father more than anything. Everything in his body resisted that, and you can imagine why. It is what led him to this point of temptation, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden where he says, God, if there's another way, take this from me, but your will be done, not mine. To be obedient to you, even in, in, if it's the worst nightmare, if I need to confront the worst nightmare that I can think of, then I'll do it. I'll do it. And the devil's lie is the real satisfaction is that real satisfaction in this life can be found. Not in restricting our freedoms, but in giving into them. But in, in having more freedom, expanding our freedom, and doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. Where Adam conceded victory to Satan, Jesus resisted him. Look at Philippians chapter 2, where, where, we, where we learn in being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took our place. He dies a sinner's death, never committing any sin, and so God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name above, above every other name. He gives him new life. He raises to new life. He goes face to face with our greatest enemy, sin and death itself, and he wins. What a, what a miserable battle that must have been. What an excruciating journey to the cross. And even that even the torture wasn't the worst part. The wrath of God and taking on our sins. And he wins. And in Christ, we have victory over sin, but there's more. Isn't this great? There's more. There's like good news upon good news. He takes our conflict. He confronts our enemy. He wins. And then he says, but there's more. Jesus doesn't only defeat our enemy. Jesus restores the garden. He restores the garden. You recall what Adam was called to do? What was, what was Adam's job? He was a gardener. He was, he was given the, the calling and task to be a gardener. God says, he puts him in the garden. He says, now cultivate the garden. Uh, help things grow. I mean, till the soil. I mean, work at this thing. He says, here's the garden. Here's all the raw material. Now I want you to be a gardener. I want you to, I want you to help it flourish. He was created to be a gardener, to cultivate. Everything was good in the garden. And through Adam's trust in God and faithfulness to God to be a good gardener to his work, he would grow in relationship with God. He was supposed to garden the whole earth, but instead the garden became a wasteland of dust. Do you remember how the Bible records the morning of Jesus' resurrection? Mary Magdalene runs to the, runs to the tomb, and she sees a gardener there at the tomb, right? The text tells us that she begins speaking with the man, a man who she thinks is the gardener, but it actually turns out to be the risen Christ. What a neat thing. What an amazing thing. What a beautiful thing how this story comes full circle. How we see that Adam was created to be the gardener and he failed, and on the morning of Jesus' resurrection, Mary Magdalene sees him as the gardener, making things new. He himself being made new. Jesus is the better gardener. 
who himself begins to restore the garden where the first gardener failed. In the book of Revelation, we're given a picture of this new and restored garden, this new creation. And there's this enormous city that is descending upon the earth, and the heavens, the old earth and the old heavens are wiped away, and the new city is coming down, the city of God in all of its glory. And through the city runs this river, and in each side of the river is a garden with a, the tree of life in its center. And now the fruit from this tree of life is, is to bring nourishment to all of God's people, and its leaves are used as, as medicine to heal the nations. We see a picture of a place where all the pleasure and enjoyment that was lost in earth is now regained and restored. How does Jesus restore this? How does he restore the garden? He's the better Adam who trusts in God. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He's the better gardener who brings good out of the dust. And it is here we see the heart of the gospel, the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The heavenly Father sent his only son to die on the cross in our place and for our sins. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is here we see the gospel. The love of God is not proven to us in our circumstances of life, but rather at the cross where Jesus died. Satan's lie lives on. He continues to deceive us. He, dece he continues to lie to you and me. He continues to try to trick us. He desires to deaden our hearts to God's love. He wants us to look at our circumstances and to question, is God really good? He desires to say, but look at the harm that has come to you. Look at the temptation. Look how, how weary and fatigued. Is God, is God, can God really be trusted? Is he truly all that you need? Life can often seem dark and painful. We may often experience the ongoing conflict of the curse of sin in this world, and we can allow ourselves to be tricked into thinking that if things go well with us, then God must truly love us. And if things are going poorly with us, then God does not love us. But the measure of God's love for us is not found in how our life goes. The measure of God's love for us is found where, on the cross where Jesus died. It is found where we see Genesis 3.15 becoming true where Jesus embraces our conflict, our life, where he goes face to face with our greatest enemy and does not sin and or fail, but he defeats our enemy. And he's rewarded with a new life, a resurrected life, so that we can have hope, the forgiveness of sins, and life with God forever. The lie began in the garden that tells us that that maybe we're really going at this alone, and maybe God helps us, but it's really the pleasures are out there to be found. And God says, the pleasures are in me. The pleasures are in me. The pleasures are found in me. Don't let your hearts be discouraged. It's the poisonous lie that continues to make us feel fearful when life is hard and doubtful of God's love for us. And so to live by faith, to live by faith in God's story is to be sure that absolutely nothing that God forbids is good for us. It is to be sure in our mind and in our heart that, that nothing that God forbids is good for us. And to be sure that absolutely nothing that God calls you to is bad for you. If He forbids it, then it is meant to destroy us. If He calls you to it, it is meant to bless you. 
We can be sure of this because the seed of the woman came into the world. He embraced our conflict. He confronted and defeated our enemy, and he's making all things new from the garden to the city to the new creation. And it is here in this life we find ourselves, and we are called to trust him. We're called to believe in him. We are called to place our hope and satisfaction in him and what he has done and who he is. Would you pray with me?